Well, hey, let me, um, let me just encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's word. We've got a short text, and we've got quite a lot to get out of it. So, uh, 1 Timothy 5, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read down two verses, two short maybe overlooked and really, really important verses for our church. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. This is the word for the Lord, of the Lord for this morning. You can be seated. Good morning. How you doing, church? Good. Hey, if you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them? We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, I think Pastor Chris already told you, there's some Bibles on the side over there. And uh, your phone turns into a Bible magically, which is really cool as well if you need that. Uh, and get to 1 Timothy chapter 5. My name's Scott. I'm the lead pastor here uh, at Doxa Church, and it's really good to be back. This is the first Sunday for me in 2022, and uh, I missed being with you guys the last two weeks. My family got some time off, which was fantastic, and uh, some great preaching while I'm gone, huh? It's like you don't even care that I'm gone. You're like, there's so much good preaching that happens here. And isn't it great to be a church that's founded on us caring about the message more than the messenger? Like when we understand it's the message that has the power, it's not me, it's not a preacher, it's the message, it's the truth. The truth is doing the work by the Spirit of God who's pleased to use his word, right? Again and again we go. So, so we don't get discouraged when so-and-so's not up here. Why? Because as long as the word, we, what, what should we get discouraged about? We should get discouraged if the word's not preached, amen? We should get discouraged if the word's not preached. So grateful to be in it again, chapter five. We are continuing a series called The Dearest Place on Earth. You found it. If you were looking for it, it's right here. And we are so glad that that's the case. And we are God's people. And uh, God uh, wants his people to put some things on display at the forefront. He wants the gospel in all of its glory to be put on display through the church. Now listen, here's where the church sometimes gets it wrong. We go, how do we make the gospel palatable so that the world will receive it better? That's not what you have in 1 Timothy. He's going, here are the glories of the gospel, church, and you are to live in a certain way that puts those on display, but listen to me, not based on how you think the world will receive it best, but on how God himself wants it to be perceived. And so we found ourselves so gratefully um, honing in on some things where our church has changed so much over the last year, year and a half. It's grown. The dynamics have shifted. And, uh, and so we wanted to get back to who are we supposed to be as the church? What are we supposed to do? And we take our marching orders from the word of God. And so we find ourselves in a really <laughs> uh, important section of scripture. So jot this down. This is the title for today. The church's how-to guide for corrective confrontation. Okay? The church's how-to guide for corrective confrontation. And nobody should be surprised that this is here. 
If you've been following along in the book of 1 Timothy, you knew something like this was bound to come. Why? Well, because Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus specifically to correct what? Some errors that were going on in the church. And there were quite a few errors. And and, and in case this is something where you're jumping in with us and haven't been with us from the beginning, let me just kind of walk you through what's been happening in chapters one through four. A lot of it has been addressing these errors. Chapter one, Paul says, listen, there's a problem in the doctrine that's being preached in the church. He calls it a different doctrine leading to a different destination, he says in chapter one, right? He goes, listen, this doctrine they're preaching is not leading to a salvation that's preached by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, issuing in a life of love. Rather, what they were doing is they were taking the Bible and using it as a means of their own self-salvation, earning their salvation, a kind of legalism that was leading to a speculation and argumentation that was going on in the church, and even kind of a salvific exclusivism where only a few people were even on the radar of potentially being able to get saved. And so by the time we get to chapter two, we're starting to see the fruit of the bad root of this doctrine where their prayer lives weren't extending to all people. But God wants all people to get saved, and they were thinking only a few people were going to get saved, and so Paul had to correct their prayers. Their bad doctrine led to bad prayer lives. For the men in the church who were supposed to be leading, instead of leading with a heart of reconciliation amongst brothers and praying for the church, they were praying in anger and disunity. Then he addresses the women, and he talks about their immodesty in the church and the fact that they were walking out of step with the divine design that God had established for men and for women in the church. By chapter 3, we realize the fact that they had had elders on the highest level of shepherding and spiritual leadership in the church who were unqualified to lead. You had deacons who were supposed to accompany the elders and serve in the ways of meeting the needs of the people, and they were unqualified And then in chapter 4, you get this pronouncement against this demonic, what I'm going to call more spiritual than God teaching that was happening in the church. A kind of, if you want to be really spiritual, you wouldn't get married to show how much you love God. You wouldn't eat certain foods if you're really serious about God. And Paul calls that a demonic teaching. To be more spiritual than God is not to be more spiritual. And so he's had to address all of that. And so listen, we're not surprised that finally we come to a practical couple verses that talk about corrective confrontation. Because the whole letter has been that. And we're not surprised that confrontation now is being addressed because this corrective conduct that Paul has established and talked to Timothy about for the first four chapters is to be taking place in the church, which chapter 3 calls the household of God, which we described was Paul's way of saying the church is a family. And so we're not surprised that he's talking about how to correctively confront one another because families love each other enough to correctively confront when needed. Some of you, this was not your experience growing up in your family. If I were to kind of give two maybe extremes on the spectrum of confrontation, some of you grew up in the avoiding confrontation at all costs. Anyone want to kind of admit to that? 
where the notion of love and confrontation was like oil and water, mutually exclusive. There is no way that we can love each other as a family and have confrontation at all. And so you guys took that broom and you swept it right under the rug, right? And then you've got the other side, though, which is what I would call destructive confrontation. And some of you grew up in that, right? You guys lived in a verbal war room with your family. You were each handed machine guns, and you were just supposed to unload about everything you felt about literally anything that, that annoyed you about an individual in the family. And you mowed it all down. You, you just destroyed one another, right? Or another version of destructive confrontation is what I call confrontation constipation. Okay? And this is very common in families. It's a mix of the first one, avoiding confrontation, until it what? Explodes all over the place. Okay. It's nasty, right? It's nasty. You'll never forget that now. It's, ew. This is where we often live in this place where it's done in anger, it's not done redemptively. You're so frustrated, you can't see straight anymore, so you have to address it, but because you've held onto it so long, you just unload on someone. And both of those are wrong. Both of those are off from what we should be doing. Now, even if you do confrontation right, it doesn't mean confrontation is fun, okay? So if you're like, today's message, she's trying to tell us that confrontation should be fun and totally normal. It should be normal, but it's not necessarily fun. But we do it, for this reason, and families have an advantage in this, because of this, where else do you get correction in the kind of a covenantally committed love like you do in the family? There is a stability that the family provides that makes corrective confrontation much more easy to receive. Now, I will say this. This is difficult to do in the church because we have a church-hopping dynamic going on, and people are leaving churches for good reasons, hear me out, and people are staying, and, in, and you know, um, but, but sometimes what happens is people stay until there is a confrontation, and then when there is a confrontation, they think the idea is they should be leaving to find somewhere else where there's no confrontation revolving around them whatsoever. And that's a problem. See, if we're not committed to each other, what happens is you confront somebody, but they're like, okay, I feel personally at risk here because I hear you correcting me, but I don't see you committed to me. You need this in a family. That's why we commit to membership in the church. That's why we commit to enduring with one another precisely because God wants the family to be a place of commitment where confrontation can happen in a way where as you're, being the, as you're the one receiving the confrontation, you're not left thinking, they're correcting me, but they're not committed to me. You're not left thinking, you don't love me, you're not for me. We're like, no, we're in it together and I am for you. And that's how the family should be. In a truly loving family, uh, recognizing what we are, which is nothing more than a tight-knit group of sinners saved by grace, saints to be sure, but sin tendencies also, we know that we will inevitably have sin problems, and truly loving one another is to correctively confront one another. 
Today is the how, though. So we know that thing is important, but how do we do it? And that leads us to our big idea for this morning. So the how-to for appropriate tact and confrontive, excuse me, corrective confrontation differs based on age and sex. Two things, age, sex. The how-to for appropriate tact and corrective confrontation differs based on age and sex. Now, before we get there, what I want to do is give you the what of corrective confrontation. Okay, there are two imperatives that are implied for all four of the distinctive categories that Paul gives. One main emphasis spread out over four categories. I want to give you the main emphasis first. I want to talk about this first. And what's the main emphasis that is across the board there? It's this. You see it in the text, right? Do not rebuke, but encourage. Now, both are imperatives. And for someone who is uh, less inclined to want to be in the confrontation game, you might be reading that and going, yes, there's my out. I'm a faithful Bible student, Pastor Scott, and it told me specifically, I don't have to rebuke anyone. I only have to encourage. See, it says it right there in the text. And this is what I would gently remind you that one of the uh, um, interpretive principles, one of the um, measures of hermeneutics by which we study the word of God is to understand that um, scripture informs and interprets scripture. So there are other passages that clearly say we are to rebuke one another, like in 2 Timothy, for example. And so it can't mean just a blanket across the board. Guys, you're all off the hook. If you're not in a confrontation, no big deal. Don't rebuke. It's a command. Don't do it. Instead, only encourage. No, that's not what he's saying. Rather, what he's saying is there's going to be, in the context of this, reasons to bring corrective confrontation to someone. And what he's really saying is don't do it like this. Do it like this. He's not saying don't do it all together. He's saying there's a way to do it that we need to be mindful of. You'll understand this more as we get into this word. The word rebuke here means to strike or to treat harshly. And it has with it the idea of a violent rebuke. Don't do that. So when you rebuke someone, you're not to beat them down with verbal blows as if you were winning an argument. You're not to hammer them with words. Ever, any, anyone ever been rebuked like this before? Where they're like, hey, sit down, and you're in my courtroom, and you will do what I tell you you're going to do. You're gonna, first of all, you're going to sit there and I'm going to bring up all the accusations and problems that I have with you, and you're going to sit there, and you're going to take it. And if you even want to nuance one dynamic of how I'm revealing it to you, that will show me that you're not listening and you're prideful. That's like hemming me in. 
You sit down, you shut up, you listen to me and how I say goes, and if you're humble, you'll receive the entire thing exactly as I perceive it. And where do I start? And then as they unfold it, they chain you down, they annihilate you, and they tear your life apart. Anyone ever been a part of that before? That is not what family corrective confrontation should ever, ever look like. I think we do it because we're so scared to confront. We feel like we have to like drum up this, you know what I'm saying? Like a little Rocky Balboa thing in the mirror before you get out there, like, I gotta do this, you know? You sit down! And it's really your heart just so fearful to actually want to do the confrontation. I'm, I'm trying to think about the benefit, the, the believing the best about someone. So, so instead, he, he gives exactly how you to do it. He says, instead, you're going to exhort them. So when you need to correctively confront, don't rebuke, exhort. Well, what's the word exhort mean? It means to call alongside. It means you're getting right next to him, you're putting your arm around him, and you're essentially going, with what I have to share with you, brother, we're in this together. We don't finish unless we finish together in this. So I'm not looking down on you. I'm not speaking to you in some sort of an arrogant, condescending tone. No, I've come alongside you. The words that are used to translate exhort in other places are encourage, admonish, exhort, entreat, appeal. You're making an appeal to them. I love this, that sometimes it can be translated as strengthen. What a different approach that is. So much less harsh. <laughs> the word, interestingly enough, is used out, was used outside of Scripture, and it was used in a military context for exhorting troops to battle and to victory. So when you have an agenda, you can't bring your confrontation up in such a way where you're so hurt, you don't have a redemptive vision for where you want to see it go. And you don't lose sight of the fact that, brother, well, I want your best. I'm here for you. I'm believing God's greater good for you, that in this you might become more like Jesus. And I'm right there alongside you, and so I don't come off with this audacious, arrogant air of superiority. No, 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 no. I come with a humble heart wanting you to finish well. The call is not to crush people. The call is not to pin them down. The call is not to shove it down their throats. The call is not to be harsh. The call is not to be severe. It is to come alongside a family member to encourage and strengthen them to holy living. There's correction for sure in this, but there's a meekness to it. It's redemptive. It's restorative. It's not, I want you to get it exactly like I see it. No, no, no. It's, I want you to grow to be more like Jesus. Sometimes even the, uh, you got to be careful of your tone, even the, in the, um, I'm doing this because I want you to grow. You know how that can kind of sound condescending? I'm doing this for you because I see some areas you need to grow in. And I'm humble enough <laughs> to share them with you. Blech. 
do you see how there's a way to do this that doesn't make you sound like a condescending jerk? That is what we're after. So he's not saying, you're off the hook, don't rebuke. He's saying there's a way to do it in the family of God. Remember, this isn't talking about wolves. So you're like, is this how we treat everybody? And this is in the context of wolves. You know what I'm talking about when I say wolves? The people that come in with that destructive doctrine to jack up the church, you treat them differently. This isn't unbelievers, it's not the same. There's differences. This is specifically how we're to treat who? Tell me. The family, the local church body, the family in this restorative, redemptive way. So when you go to correct, which we will need to do because we love one another enough to confront sin and error, don't rebuke harshly, exhort redemptively. That's the what. Clear? Fantastic. I think it's clear, and I took two nods as a yes on the board for everybody, so fantastic. Now, how you confront is altered based on age and gender. Yes? Yes, yes, yes. We're getting into a good rhythm already in 2022. I like that, guys. Thank you. Yes, 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 yes. Um, so that means some things, right? Let's think about this in the context of 2022. If, if how you confront is altered based on age and gender, doesn't that mean that the text then demands us to acknowledge the right categories? Okay, yes. That I know this kind of might sound, um, I guess I would say the word crazy, but it's becoming much more common. I think we need to say what this text is implying is that everyone is either a man or a woman. And everyone, this is the more offensive one maybe, is either younger or older. And humility would go a long way in being able to identify that, <laughs> perhaps on both ends. And as such, that definition of whether you're male or female, man or woman, or whether, rather you're, whether you're younger or older is not based on you being free to define how you feel inside as the defining measure for that as if the pastor is meant to adjust their approach depending on how you proclaim you feel inside or how much Pilates and blueberries you eat, <laughs> right? So on either side of that, this is important to pastoral ministry. How do you do this without those lines defined? And I will say the concern is our modern day. Recently, uh, January 8th, uh, Canada passed Bill C-4. I don't know if you've heard of Bill C-4. Bill C-4 directly comes against parents, churches, and counselors who would seek to offer biblical counsel with respect to sexuality and gender, criminalizing up to five years among things such as a practice, a treatment, or service designed to change or repress non-cisgender identity. If you don't know what that word cisgender means, they define it in the next line. Cisgender identity that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth. In other words, they've tried to separate gender from the sex that you biological sex at birth. 
They go on to say this, cisgender identity, here's the definition, that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth, that that is to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, or expressions is a myth, end quote. And so today, many pastors are gathering around the world to make a stand for faithful, biblical, sexual morality. And standing with our Canadian brothers and sisters who realize if you diminish the bar on Christian morality, you have nothing to call them to when you preach the gospel. Call them to what? New creation? Yeah, but you don't look new. How does that work? And so we have to stand on the truth regardless of how we feel. And I am not trying to delegitimize people's feelings inside as if they don't matter at all. But my, my heart as a pastor is to say we cannot compromise and probably can't just read over this and start to walk into it as if we all know that everyone in here really is a boy by biological reality, but also by feeling or maybe only a boy by biological reality, but not by feeling or vice versa, Right? that there could be some of that going on, that there is that going on in our world. And so we want to stand on the reality that male and female, he created them in the image of God. And we stand upon that glorious reality because we have a glorious gospel to preach. And that gospel is that we are all sinners before a holy God, that we have all rebelled against him, that every one of us probably, honestly, in one way or another, has committed a form of sexual immorality amongst many other forms of sin in our lives that have led us way far away from the Lord. And the problem is upon our sinning, we had no way to earn our way back into God's good favor because God is perfect and just and holy and righteous and you don't like do a bunch of good deeds to undo your bad deeds. And so you were stuck in a really crazy and unfortunate and really hopeless predicament. And you were destined for judgment and an eternity is separated from God forever, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live for us the life we didn't live. A life free from sin, free from division, free from debauchery, free from sexual immorality, free from adultery, free from homosexuality, free from all of those things, living in perfect accordance with the law of God so that his life in righteousness could replace your life in unrighteousness. And then he substituted himself. He didn't ask your permission. He just loved you so much he knew what you needed and he died on a cross for your sin. And three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death, so that you know whoever, the invitation is to anyone, whoever would turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus, which is really two sides of the same coin, it's get after Jesus, will be saved, forgiven of all of their sin, and assured of eternal life. And what I love about the gospel that you can respond to today and you can do it by faith is that the gospel doesn't require you to be figured out sexually in order to respond. But the gospel also doesn't leave you to stay in the realm of self-definition. 
but ushers in a delight to conform to God's good design and how he made you biologically male or female to his glory. It changes you. You want what he wants. You see his design is good and you want to walk in that. The gospel changes everything. The gospel is our identity as the people of God and so I don't want to lose sight of that as we come to this text because this text has implications about being male and female and about how a pastor in particular is supposed to correct and confront accordingly. So now we're to our points and we're in to like the beginning of the first verse. You see it, right? Four breakdowns here in the text. He's speaking to Timothy specifically. Okay, it's in the second person singular. He's speaking to Timothy specifically. So I'm going to ask the question, pastor, comma, and by extension, Christian, how are you to approach older, younger men, older, younger women for corrective confrontation? Right, this is what Paul's addressing. He addresses all four of those groups, and I'm going to do it one by one as we see it in the text. So, pastor, and by extension, Christian, how are we to approach older men for corrective confrontation? Do it this way. Number one, do it as fathers in respect. Do it as fathers in respect. Confrontation is hard enough anyway. Think about the dynamic of being a young pastor in their mid-30s that is having to correct a, a seasoned man of God in their 60s, or at least someone who's perceived as being a spiritual leader in the church. When you think about who Timothy had to primarily correct that was causing the, that were causing the greatest problems in the church, it was likely in the older men category, yeah? Yeah? And so confrontation is one thing, but you kind of almost, as a young pastor, you're like, uh, can, I, can we work this out, God, where you get someone else to do that? Like, you're not expecting me to do that, right? There's got to be some levels. There's got to be some deferential, I-, I send someone else to go do that, and Paul actually doesn't give Timothy that out. He doesn't say, spare them because they're older and you should respect them and let them walk in what they're walking in. He doesn't say that. But he also doesn't say, address them from a place of superiority as a pastor. He also doesn't say, address them from a place of equality as if you're a peer with an older man. Like we can talk as buddies on the same playing field. It's all level, you and me. No, he says, when you're addressing an older man... You don't come to him from a position of superiority. You don't come to him from a position of equality. You don't correct a father from an air of arrogance, but rather from a place of respect. And we don't, I mean, our culture is massively juvenilized, right? Like we struggle to understand the kind of context that this is in in the first century in an honor-shame culture where there is a built-in approach to older seasoned people that we just simply almost neglect without the Bible reminding us this is how we should treat those people. We should treat older men with respect. 
especially when it comes to the confrontation game. So what does that look like? What would that be? Well, a couple things. It probably has an esteem to it in the way that you do it. It probably has an affection in it in the way that you do it. You're probably taking a different tone. You're probably using a wise moderation in the way and how much you share that's bathed in prayer and you seeking the Lord for wisdom. It has to have a certain tact that gives regard to the older man in the role and place of life he is as one who is to be respected. Timothy's going to have to confront older men and by extension, you might have to confront an older man in the church and when you do that, you are to do it as, he, as if he were a father in respect. Here's the second one. What about a younger man? Pastor, and by extension Christian, how do we correctively confront a younger man? Do it like this. Do it as, number two, as brothers in equality. Okay? Do it as brothers in equality. If the word for confronting older men is as a father in respect, the word for confronting a younger man is as a brother in equality. What do I mean by that? I mean when you're brothers, you're on the same familial line. Siblings status, right? You're, you're not, even as the older brother, which I like to claim, and perhaps leveraged a wee bit too much in my younger days, for the authority my brothers should rightly show me. The text is saying you're in the same area. You are not in a higher level of authority within the family. You are a brother, and so you need to come to your younger men brothers, your younger brothers, with the spirit of equality, mutuality, and humility. Because you, have to, you understand the position you are in life. You're not a seasoned older man. You're a younger man, subject to the same things that a younger man that you might be confronting is subject to himself. Galatians 6 has a perfect example of this. He even uses the word. Brothers, he says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him which is like the same word we get for mending a bone or mending a net. You are to mend them up you are to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Why a spirit of gentleness? Well, keep reading. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, brother. Why mutuality? Because to think that you're going to correct someone for something you're not susceptible to yourself is foolish and a miss. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a miss when you are engaging in corrective confrontation with a younger man. When you come up to a younger man, you don't try to posture yourself over your brother. And again, he's talking to Timothy, one young man to another young man. You aren't to posture yourself over your brother. You aren't to talk down to your brother. You are to talk in a way that acknowledges that these very same things could be true of you, and but by the grace of God go I. So you don't come off in a way that just unnecessarily complicates the confrontation by sounding like a superior, condescending jerk. 
Now, of course, I'm sure you're like, well, how do we figure out who's older and who's younger? Am I like asking first before I go up? Don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, excuse me, miss, are you in the older women's club? Don't do it. Don't do it. And it is a club. I just needed to know how I was supposed to confront you first. Don't, don't do it. If, if he really wanted us to know that, like, here's the age breakdown. At this age, they're older, and at this age, they're younger, he would have given it to us. He's hoping we can put two and two together. I know some of us, maybe not the sharpest tools in the shed. But I think we need to assess it from where are we and where are they? Knowing that the basic line in Judaism for an adult was essentially 40 and above was considered older. Okay? Did I just lay that down for some people? It's like, oh! I've celebrated my 40 birthday like 30 times. Ow. I love people that do that, by the way. It's my 40th. The 19th time I've celebrated my 40th birthday. Does anyone do that? That's fantastic. I hear that. Yeah, come to my 40th. It's somewhere in there. It, it doesn't really matter where that line is. You should be able to see based on where you are, where they are, and address that appropriately with wisdom and insight. And if you're not sure, it would just be wise to ask for some counsel, right? If someone's in the tweener zone that you need to correctively confront, just, just come up and ask me. I hang out in the back after service. I'll help you. Or maybe someone else can help you. That would be a win. But that's how you're to do the men. Older men as fathers in respect, younger as brothers in equality. But what about older women? And I say that with fear and trembling. <laughs> How are we to correctively confront older women? Do it like this. Do it as mothers in esteem. Similar word to respect. Why? Because in the Ten Commandments, for example, comes out in the epistles that we are to honor our father, but also our mother, for this is the commandment with the promise that life may go well for you. So when corrective confrontation is required, it's to be done with an esteem. It's to be done with a high regard. It's to be done with much prayer and wisdom. One of the things I learned from my dad, I, I actually had to go to etiquette school as a kid, which is the kind of summer camp you don't sign up for as a kid. You get dropped off at and said, we'll see you later, buddy. And my dad was big on manners. And he grew up, uh, elbows on the table was a knife, the backside of a knife to the back of his elbows kind of thing. And uh, to the day he died, any time we were ever out at a restaurant, my dad would stand up any time a female would come to the table, especially an older woman, in respect and honor, and then he would sit down. People don't do that anymore. But I was just thinking, that's the kind of heart that if we're not careful, we're going to miss in our generation that needs to be there in the way we correctively confront older women. In the same way that you ought to, in etiquette and respect and esteem, stand up for someone when they come back from the bathroom to the table or just get there at the beginning, you would stand to honor them. That's the same approach you ought to have in this way. And I can give you an example in the Bible of how this plays out. In Philippians 4, when Yodia and Syntyche, remember those two gals in Philippians 4, were having struggles with each other? How did Paul approach that? 
He couched the entire correction he needed to provide for two likely older women in the church by such esteem and care and regard for these ladies. In verse one, he talks about them being loved and having be, uh, being part of his crown and his joy, he says. He goes on in the next verse to tell them that he is mindful of their care, their help, and support in the gospel, and that lays the foundation for him to say, and I am calling on you to agree with one another. So one of the ways I think this plays out to bring in esteem is to have a context to your corrective confrontation. What are you saying that just goes, I just want to acknowledge the fact that you have been such a blessing in all these ways. You've been alongside me, Paul says, in ministry. You have been a massive help and a care and a support. You're my joy and my crown, and I love you. And on that basis, may I submit to you to agree with one another. That's how we're supposed to do it. That's how Paul would want us to approach older women in the church for corrective confrontation. And then this, the how-to for young ladies. The how-to for young ladies. This is the only one of these that gets an extended phrase on it. In all purity, it does not apply to the other three. It applies to the last one. What does he say? And younger women as sisters in all purity. Pastor, and by extension, Christian, how are we to approach younger women for correction as sisters in all purity? This word purity is the same word from last week. Do you remember when Pastor, Pastor Michael described this word from chapter 4, verse 12? He was trying to say, and he's right, and saying that it was a, it's a broader word for purity. When we think of purity in our context, we immediately think sexual purity. Um, this is a broader word. He doesn't use only that word, though, and that's what we're going to talk about. But let me just give you the framework for this word. This is a word that denotes moral virtue, generally speaking. Uh, you might describe it more specifically as complete conformity in thought, word, and deed with God's moral law. So if you want to know what that word purity means, it means complete <laughs> conformity in thought, word, and deed to God's moral law as revealed in the whole counsel of Scripture. That's what the word purity means that he's using here. However, by the addition of all, as in in all purity, in absolute, complete, utter purity, most commentators believe he is trying to make a specific reference to sexual purity, and I think we have reason to believe that those issues were going on in the church at Ephesus. We see that there was an issue with younger widows who were kind of overtly, let's just call it, flirtatious. And we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, that there were individuals, likely in spiritual authority, who were creeping into households and capturing weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. That is pastoral explo exploitation at its finest. Church, this is a serious word for pastors, and it is a serious word for folks like you today. 
I am getting sick and tired of seeing the amount of pastors who are disqualifying themselves by doing things with other women that are not their wives. And it just happened again. Another up-and-coming, makes the magazine, one of the fastest-growing churches in America. Turns out everyone has a phone these days and was kissing someone that wasn't his wife in a public setting. Now, the danger of those type of situations is a lot of times those guys won't even get removed because they aren't operating out of the premise of 1 Timothy, and so they don't have the elders to remove them. They sit as an authoritative pope in their church who directs everything. So unless the guy murders someone, we're going to figure out a, a, a creative counseling thing, take him away for a little bit, and then bring him back fully in like two to three months. That is a fail. That is an absolute fail. And I say that knowing that, but by the grace go I. This is dead serious. This is, there's some sort of thing that goes on where, and it's true of relationships, there's like a sexualization almost built into it. And, and pastors, if, if we're not careful, and, and Christians, if you're not careful, you can develop the savior complex. Whereas you minister to someone who's in need, and they're vulnerable, and they're confessing sin, and you're addressing these things, that you take advantage of that, and you put your hand on top of theirs, and you lean in for a kiss that you shouldn't lean in for, and what Paul is saying here is, you're to treat them like a sister. So forgive me for being frank, but unless you're slipping your tongue down your sister's throat, you definitely shouldn't be doing it with someone in the church that's not your wife. Too bold? You can email me, cridder at doxachurch.net. And I will get back to everything you guys are concerned about with what I just said. That is not in my notes. I am dead serious about saying that. This is a problem. This is an exploitation. And Paul's like, this has to be addressed in the church. Timothy was to treat younger women in the church in a chaste and protective manner in the same way he'd treat his own sister. That's how we're to interact. Now, I will say this. Suppose we get all this done. This is not going to perfectly solve all of the issues, right? You're like, I did it. I, I did it just like that. I knew they were older. I knew they were biologically male. And I, 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 I did the play. They didn't receive it very well. Possible, right? Two sinners engage in that level of relationship. We used to put this on men's retreat t-shirts all the time, right? As iron sharpens iron, we're like, yeah. Uh, that's iron sharpening iron. And sparks fly when iron sharpens iron. So if you think like, I nailed it. it I, I can't believe it's all their fault. You're going to add to it. It's just going to make it worse. And someone may be resistant to your corrective conversation. That's why the gospel's here. We're going to need a whole ton of grace with one another to figure out how to do this. And the idea that like um, you're going to nail it perfectly even after this uh, is very unlikely. Or that it's not going to be perceived as feeling perfect in your approach by the person that's receiving it is also likely. And understand that pride in the heart resists confrontation which complicates what's going on here. And so I want to bring that up at the, at the end just to say, we're not going to do this perfectly, but we need to do this regularly. And we need to have the kind of humility 
and the kind of grace, seeing ourselves before God in the right way so that we would gladly extend mercy and forgiveness to others. Because if you are mindful of how much grace you need from God, you will never even get close to comparing the offense that someone else has committed against you in an attempt towards redemptive correction. Those don't line up in the same ballpark. Unless you think of yourself too highly. And if you do, it will break down and we will struggle. But by God's grace, we have all the tools we need in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the spirit of God to correct one another in a way that is redemptive, in a way that is restorative, in a way that puts on display the fruit of the gospel in a way not necessarily that the world wants to see it, but in the way Christ wants it perceived. And I will tell you what, there is something compelling about people being able to endure in relationship in a culture where everything is you do one thing against me and you're out we can be these people by God's grace and I pray that we would be let's pray Father it is a joy to be back in the pulpit it is a joy to preach your word I pray God that we can be these people I pray that this can be our heart that you would lead us and guide us in such a way that by humility and appropriate deference in accordance with age and gender that we might lovingly but boldly, restoratively and redemptively, correctively confront for the glory of your name, the good of your people, and the display of the gospel for all to see through the church. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>